This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. Welcome to the California Liberty Project. My name is Greg, and I appreciate you being back here for your Weekend Liberty Podcast. For those of you in California, welcome. For those of you around the country, and even a few listeners internationally, welcome. Please keep coming back. We'd love to have you here. Um, We're going to jump right in with episode eight with a good friend of mine, Las Vegas Carrasco. But first, remember to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, all over, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to share if you like what you're hearing. And also follow us on social media. Um, I'm pretty active on at California Liberty Project on Instagram, on Twitter, at CA underscore Liberty under P-R-O-J. I'm getting more active there, trying to trying to interact a little bit more and grow the presence on Twitter. And follow us all over. Um, and again, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for being here. So without further ado, I want to jump right in for today's episode. I am really excited. I'm pleased to be joined by one of my best friends in the world, one of my oldest friends in the world, uh, Blas Vegas Carrasco. Um, And Blas is a man of many talents. So he'll be joining us from time to time, as often as I can kind of twist his arm and convince him to be here with us, um, as often as I can afford his services. and so, in addition to being one of my, my best and oldest friends, Bloss is a, an accomplished martial artist, an entrepreneur, um, a musician. We go way back playing uh, the hard rock jams together. Great bass player um, in the mold of, uh, of Flea, and then also some great metal players through the years. So we love music. And also a proud Texan. So Bloss is uh, joining us from Texas today, and he can tell us maybe a little bit more about... Um, the free state of Texas versus the less free state of California. Anyway, Bloss, um, thanks, man, for being here. Really appreciate it. No, thank you, Greg, for having me. I'm really excited to uh, be a part of your project, you know, and I'm really happy to see that you've really run with, run with it and you've had some great guests. So it's been awesome seeing, you know, the California Liberty Project podcast really kick off. So I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, man. Really appreciate it. So, you and I have talked more and more. I mean, we always talked off and on throughout the years about, you know, political things. We'd have our rants. We'd have our discussions, right, as friends do. But I think more and more so in the past few years, we've been um, kind of circulating on this uh, similar wavelength. Or maybe we both kind of, um, maybe we've come to a similar place. But um, yeah, in terms of your liberty journey, do you want to maybe just tell us all about, like, Kind of how how did you get to where you are today? How would you describe yourself? Kind of what's your journey been um, to where you're at in terms of kind of like either red pilling or white pilling or clear pilling wh- wherever you're at right now. Why don't you just give us a little background and then we'll jump into uh, to some great stuff to some Murray Rothbard. Sure, absolutely. Now, um, you know, I think I've always kind of been a I don't know a closet political enthusiast. You know, uh, I never was very openly, uh, I guess, vocal about any of my views, um, honestly, because I just never felt like I had the uh, the knowledge to fill in the gaps of the things that I that I believed. Right. And so I was never confident in that. 
So then, you know, fast forward to 2000, I guess, late 2019, I uh, had really started getting into Thomas Soul, And then I had reached out to you uh, because I knew that you were very into, you know, political activism and, and uh, just knowing what's going on in, in, in current events. And I had asked you a question, hey, you know, what are some great podcasts or books that you recommend related to political theory, um, government? history any of that and uh, and i felt like that kid on the movie uhf where you know they open up the the fire hose and all the water just like blows that kid off the off the seat you know you really did give me some great reading materials and resources and uh you know one of them was the book that we're going to talk about today anatomy of the state by murray rothbard that was the first one i read and i gotta be honest man after i read that book uh, it, it really did, I guess, that was the start of my red pill journey, you know, and then a lot of things started to make a lot of sense to me, and I started filling in the gaps, and what I believe started to make even more sense after reading uh, a lot of these resources and getting into a lot of the other podcasts that you had recommended. So that's kind of the the short of it, how I started even down this journey of, you know, you know, individual sovereignty, right? That's what we're after. So, and that's why I'm here. So there you go. Yeah. yeah and I think one of the, the first kind of podcasters that we found a, a common um, enthusiasm for was the great Tom Woods. Just awesome yeah. guy. Great yeah. podcast, a brilliant thinker. I mean, brilliant thinker, a man of many talents, um, entrepreneur, uh, business-minded person, PhD in history though from Ivy League schools, has written tons of books. Um, not the least of which is Politically Incorrect Guide uh, to American History, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, you and I both had a, had a great time going out to his 2000th episode spectacular in Orlando, uh, what, last fall? Yeah, that was so, a lot of fun. Um, yeah, that was fun. Um, and so we're, we're gunning for uh, the 3000th episode spectacular, um, what, in another couple of years, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, um, okay, so, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks, Bloss, for walking us through your journey. Okay, so for everyone listening, Bloss has mentioned Murray Rothbard, and we're going to talk about Rothbard's anatomy of the state, as he mentioned. And so, you know, the reason I want to, to talk about this book and to, to kind of dive into it a little bit more is that it's one of those brief, um, almost like an essay. It's a very brief book. It's more of an essay, but it does have chapters. It does have sections. And it's one of those books, in my opinion, that you can recommend to someone and you can say, hey, sit down for an afternoon or a couple of days, read this, see what you think. Some of the ideas are radical. Um, but I think for a lot of right-leaning people, a lot of liberty-minded people are just you know, nonconformists, people who, who can see the news, see the cable news and say, hey, something's not right. I think for a lot of those types of people, which is it's a broad subsection, right, of society these days. I think you can give them this recommendation, and I think it really hits home with a lot of people. Um, you know, we're not recommending people. I'm not saying don't do this, but I'm not saying also, okay, go and buy, like, man, economy, and state, you know, um, this one here. Giant economic tome. It's really an economic treatise, one of, one of just a few written, really, in the 20th century. That is great. Murray Rothbard was an economist, of course. Um, so he was first and foremost an economic thinker, and he wrote that, that treatise. 
that's great. That's all fine and good. But reading a 900-page book is not going to be something that you can just toss to someone and say, hey, check this out on a Saturday and let's talk about it next time. No, when, when someone's asking you maybe for a recommendation or if there's something that's a little bit shorter, that's kind of pithy, it's punchy, you want to give them something maybe that really packs that punch that can really open some eyes. And to me, Anatomy of the State, as Blas indicated, is one of those books. Um, another one actually is Economics in One Lesson, which I'd, I'd done a few posts on recently on social media. And that's another one I hope to talk about. Uh, you know, maybe we can talk about it sometime soon. But another one, like less than 200 pages or whatever, but it just is like, bam, bam, bam. Every chapter hits, every chapter addresses something and helps overturn, you know, this uh, narrative that we've all ingested. Uh, so anyway, who was Murray Rothbard? As I mentioned, Murray Rothbard was first and foremost an economist. Um, he was a protege of the great Ludwig von Mises, um, a famous free market and Austrian school economist, um, you know, in the 20th century. And so Murray Rothbard kind of bounced around different academic institutions in his career as an economist. And I think because of a lot of his political views, which were very much anti-state, right, and anti-tyranny. He had radical political views, and so I think he never really found, um, you know, he never found that right fit for him at an institution. I, I think that kind of contributed to maybe never finding, like, that, that home. Eventually, he ended up at um, UNLV, you know, Las Vegas, and he was there when um, Hoppe was there, one of his protégés. But he was always this kind of outside-the-box thinker, you know, a very early libertarian he helped found the Libertarian Party back in the early 70s, of course. And he was this like radical anarchist thinker. And then for those of you thinking, uh-oh, what am I getting myself into? Anarchism, you know, I, I don't want all that. You know, I'm just here because I don't like vaccine mandates or whatever, right? <laughs> Which I think is a, is a big part of the audience. Don't worry, when we're talking about anarchism, you know, Rothbard was, he was not a left winger by any stretch. He was not a communist. He was not like a Sacco and Vin, Vincetti or Vinzetti in the early 1900s. This is a very different form of anarchism where it's free market anarchism, um, voluntary uh, interactions in society, peace, peacefulness, um, capitalism. And so they call it, you know, it's anarcho-capitalism or ANCAPs. And really, Murray Rothbard was one of those seminal figures. Okay, so that's kind of the introduction to who Rothbard was. He wrote, as I said, some great economic treatises. He also wrote, like, For a New Liberty, which is like a libertarian manifesto. Um, so he wrote political theory. He dabbled in political philosophy, although he was not a philosopher, per se. And then he also dabbled in history. So for those of you who are interested in American history, he has a great five-part series, Conceived in Liberty. That's a great series. Um, and it's definitely... It's definitely historical revisionism, which means revising kind of the propagandistic uh, previous view of a lot of history. It's definitely written from a libertarian perspective. Uh, check that out as well um, whenever you can. But for Anatomy of the State, this was written back in... Uh, 1970, 1974, I believe. See, earlier in his career, he was really hammering out a lot of the economic stuff. Uh, man, economy, and state, uh, I think 1962. This was 74. And then he was doing all kinds of libertarian writing um, in, in through the 70s. And the cool thing about Marie Rothbard was he was not just like an 
anarchist crazed guy who said you've got to be an anarchist otherwise you're you know you're just insane he was really more interested in how radical are you um how much do you hate the state he actually has an essay where he wrote do you hate the state um and that's essentially just you know whether or not you're a small government laissez-faire libertarian um or even a small government person like a minarchist or you're an anarchist it's really more of a matter of how much do you despise what the state does to peaceful human interactions and whatnot? And so that's that's kind of where he's coming from. He's really a natural rights person, which is fascinating. He was not like utilitarian, um, so he did believe in inherent natural rights. And so he, he went squarely along with the, the tradition of American radicals. He loved the Patrick Henrys of the world, as we do. He loved the Tom Paines, and then later he loved the Jacksonians. Um, he, he just loved that kind of you know, that spirit of, uh, of liberty, you just, that fiery spirit of um, facing down tyranny. Okay, so he saw the state as something to, um, something that needed to be opposed because it was antithetical to human liberty. And that's kind of where we pick up, you know, with all that preamble, we pick up here today on Anatomy of the State, which, again, it's, it's a very small book. It's almost like a, you know, an in-depth essay, which is really cool. And so we thought we would go through that. Um, you know, basically, if you just look at the table of contents, it's really cool because he starts with what the state is not. So he doesn't start with his definition of the state necessarily. It's like, okay, first and foremost, what the state is not. And so, uh, Bloss, I don't know, what, what are your main thoughts of where he kind of starts off this essay, you know, with what the state is not? Yeah, I did like the way that he started it off because even in the very first sentence of that first chapter, he the way he set it up is almost like, oh, so, okay, so the first sentence is, the state is almost universally considered an institution of social service. So just that sentence right there, you're almost like, oh, well, there's, where's he getting at? Is it not that, right? If you're a more blue-pilled individual, you see what I'm saying? And I like that he started it off this way because it sets the tone and it ties in other topics later in the in the essay, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Um, and then right away, one of the first things he mentions is this, this idea of, you know, we, we are the government, right? Which we've heard spewed constantly from the Biden administration, directly from the word, from, from Joe Biden's mouth, verbatim, we are the government, and that is most certainly not the case. Um, and he goes into a, a quite uh, interesting explanation as to why that is not true, because if we are the government, then you could just really just say that we've basically done, the last two years, we just did it to ourselves. Right. And I guess in some regard, we yeah. kind of did because it was amazing how how easily people just gave gave up and handed over their, their freedoms. Right. So this notion that we are the government is really silly because the government does not, as he points out, represent the majority of, of the of the public. So I really did like how he started it off that way, because it really does right away challenge your preconceived ideas of what you thought government is. Right. And then, yeah, so, and there's other things that tie into that very first idea of we aren't the government. Um, I think it's like, I can't remember, maybe the fourth chapter in or third chapter in that I'll point out later. But I thought it was a powerful way to start off the essay for sure. 
Yeah, no, that's critical, right? Um, besides Biden, even Obama, I think you know, during his tenure, I don't know if it's 2010, 2012, but he, he loved to say this too. The government is all of us. The government is the thing that we all have in common. We are the government. And, and Rothbard comes right out and says, we are not the government. There's no we, like you mentioned, and the government is not us. And um, he makes the point that, hey, just because maybe 70% of the people decided to murder or plunder the other 30%, does that mean it's okay? Does that mean it's like a voluntary suicide on the part of the 30%? I mean, of course not, you know? And it, it brings me back to that old, uh, that old adage that democracy is essentially two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same thing, almost the same ratio, right? It's kind of like, is that fair? Is that just? Or is that just some kind of uh, tyranny of the majority, um, as I think even de Tocqueville um, has written about? But um, yeah, so that's the first thing. He's kind of like, get this notion out of your head. It's like he's clearing the deck, right? Um, before going into what the state actually is, it's kind of like, no, it's not some gauzy, fuzzy and warm, nice feeling of it unites all of us. Right. Um, and then by the end of that first chapter, you know, he's, he's kind of starting to transition into, okay, so we've gotten that out of the way. What is the state, you know? And then, and then that's the whole like next chapter. But, um, I kind of underline this, that he says, the state is that organization in society, which attempts to maintain a monopoly on the use of force and violence in a given territorial, territorial area. And there it is, right? A monopoly. Don't interfere with the state's monopoly to use force at the end of the day. That, that's where it's at. Yeah, you know, another part of that, that section right there, I think it's the immediate sentence right after that, Greg, that I found particularly impactful was when he says, in particular, it is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue, not by voluntary contribution or payment for services rendered, but by coercion. And that's a powerful statement because nothing else in society operates this way other than a gang of criminals, right? Yes. So, right. I mean, I had a business and I had to, you know, I had I dealt in voluntary exchange of people who wanted my services, right? And that's how I made money. And, it, you know, there's quotes I've seen also. It's like the only other organizations, like I said, that operate the way the government does are literally just a band of thieves, you know, criminals just stealing from other people. So why right. is that then okay that the government does that? And so I found that part also particularly powerful. And so when you start off that, the essay in this manner, you're immediately challenged right away with some different, more radical ways of thinking about the state's function in society, you know, their role in, in our society. So, yeah, this was like a big red pill part, you know, for me, you know, when reading this. Right, right. I, I've heard people um, make this analogy. I'm not sure if it was Dave Smith or, or even Tom Woods, but um, quoting someone else, and forgive me, I'm forgetting offhand, but what the what the analogy is, or you know, yeah, it's essentially an analogy that wouldn't it be insane if you were just living peacefully with with your neighbors, you know, in some neighborhood somewhere in in America on the continent, and they all decided, you know, most of them decided that, hey, you know, we we really want to we want to make sure to keep you safe, you know, from from anything that could happen out here in our little neighborhood, and uh, and so we've decided that uh, we're going to start charging you like hundred bucks a month. And that'll be our safety committee fee. 
And you said, well, uh, okay, maybe, I don't know about this, I'm not really sure. You know, and then they gradually started taking on more and more power. Then they gradually started like coming into your house to check on things. And one month if you said, you know, I, I don't want to pay this month or whatever, that's okay, but thank you for the services. And then they said, no, you have to pay. And then you said, no, thank you. And then they came back and knocked on your door and said, okay, no, you've got to come with us. We're going to lock you up and put you in a box because you didn't pay. And then you're like, well, I never agreed to pay. You know, and yeah. you could take this, this metaphor down the line. And it, it really, it sounds absurd, but it's like, well, yeah, if we stop and think about it, what it does is point us to the obvious question, is there a social contract in mm-hmm. place? What is the social contract? We all kind of learned that in schools growing up, right? And so it kind of points that out. It lays it bare in my mind. Yeah. Um, it, what, how do we operate? How does the state get its authority? And so some of these ideas that were introduced right up front in the book, um, again, kind of moving into that second chapter, he goes into, mm-hmm. all right, what is the state or what the state is, essentially? Um, and then he kind of picks up with, you know, some discussion on how the state is the systemization of predatory process over a given territory. Um, and the state was not created by this social contract, as we just kind of mentioned. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought it was effective to pick up to pick up the conversation there after kind of first saying, yeah, this is what it is not. Here is what it is. And it kind of lays into, okay, what are some of the problems with that? I don't know what you thought about that kind of second second section. Yeah, well, as as I was reading that second section, you know, the part that I thought kind of reinforced the ending of the first chapter was kind of in that second paragraph where he's referencing what Franz Oppenheimer mentions and when he's mentioning economic means of obtaining wealth versus the political means of obtaining wealth. And that just kind of further further kind of um, reinforced the idea that he ended the first chapter on, right? So economic means just being production and exchange, right? So I produce something, you agree that you have a need for it, we have a voluntary exchange of, you know, service for funds or whatever, right? And whereas the political means is the the antithesis to that, right? Which is just, in simple terms, I wrote it here, it's theft, ultimately, right? Um, Through force and violence. So that entire section right there, to me, it, it really forces you to think, pretty hard I think about okay well what what parts of society and what parts of governments you know it helps you kind of I guess break it down okay where do I see political means and where do I see economic means economic means we see it all the time in our daily lives right when we go to the store and buy whatever it is that we're going to buy the political means however is you're constantly reminded of it every time you look at your paycheck I guess right or so coercion right yeah yeah and and so i don't know it that was a big one to me and then of course it's the first time that rothbard mentions natural law in in Mm -hmm. the essay which was you know he's kind of starts moving into that um talking about what you just said the exploitative means is you know contrary to is contrary to natural law right right and if if people don't really understand that like if you're kind of newer to I guess, to liberty movement or whatever, then you should definitely kind of start there, 
I think, and understand that whole idea and concept. And I think it helps bring everything together. You know, it's kind of the glue to all of this other stuff, I think. Yeah, and the concept of like where our rights do come from, because there is a big, yeah. big kind of split. And this stuff is important. It's not just esoteric, but there's kind of the natural rights tied into the natural law side of things where mm-hmm. nature and reality is intelligible, it's knowable to us, and we know that we are born with inherent rights. That's plainly evident. Um, lots of great philosophers and incredible thinkers have yeah. expounded upon that, you know, like St. Thomas Aquinas and others through the years, you know, tracing all the way back to Aristotle. But this idea of natural rights as being knowable and observable and um, inherent is very important because it contrasts with with other people, um, a lot of progressives, and even some libertarians who are more utilitarian. You know, they just basically are, mm-hmm. are going to say, well, let's do what works, or let's do what helps the most people, um, you know, that we can. And I think there's you know, there's probably some, some well-meaning in that, that line of thinking, um, but it's a very different approach, right? And, and so the way yeah. that you look at where your rights come from um, whether that's nature or, you know, of course, God, or you're born with those rights, it's very different than saying, well, we're going to have a consensus. We're going to do what works. We're going to do what helps the most people. So we need to vote on it. Or if we're not going to vote, um, we're going to have, you know, some kind of, of workable consensus. We just need to do what works best. That's more of a utilitarian mm-hmm. or even a pragmatist approach in very broad terms, right? Sure. Um, yeah, and so that's key. That is a key distinction because uh, Rothbard's coming at it from a natural rights kind of perspective, uh, which is very much in line with the American tradition, which is really cool. It ties right, right back in. He loves that American yeah. radical tradition, the, the Tom Paine stuff, the Patrick Henry, and even um, a lot of what Jefferson wrote, you know, in the Declaration, um, harnessing, yeah. harnessing like Locke and natural rights and so forth. Yeah, I think he did a really good job in the, kind of towards the end of the second chapter setting up the next topic right so you know how the state preserves itself you know because right before that he's talking about you know basically the state is you know the organization of the political means right and if you understood what that meant in the previous section then you know what he's saying there you know and here he says it is the systemization of the predatory process over a given territory so then now you have that idea in your head and then as he moves into that third chapter how the state preserves itself i think is quite interesting because you then you start to see kind of this illusion right that the state has kind of set up for the people in order for them to buy into this whole ridiculous idea of of the state anyways so i don't know what your thoughts are there as he leads into that third chapter you know how the state preserves itself yeah no i think i think that's um i think that's right absolutely and what you said there kind of just made me think of um how this has a lot of overlap even with with bastiat and uh, in the law so in the law, he talks a lot about plunder, you know, about how um, people can, can use uh, essentially government to take from others and they can do it under the guise of, you know, we're trying to take care of you or it can just be kind of outright corruption or theft. And I think this is where a lot of that thinking, you know, that classical liberalism ties in to this tradition, um, you know, Bastiat and, you know, many of those French thinkers and then even into Jefferson. It's this idea of plunder. You know, a group of people can call themselves the state or the government 
and then they can plunder, they can take over your property, they can control your property, and then they can do it, as you were kind of hinting at there, or you were getting at, they can do it under the guise of helping others, or here's how they kind of subvert the whole way of thinking, you know, that they're, they're confiscating, um, they're taking, they're expropriating you, but, you know, we have to do it, um, we've got to do it, essentially, right? Um, it, it needs to be done for, the, for your better... Um, your better interests, you know, to take care of all of us. And that's why this is, that's why this is happening. And I think it was also interesting too, how he talks about, uh, very briefly talks about, you know, what makes something your property, you know, going back to Locke. Remember, you, you make something from the natural world, your property by either fencing it off, by mixing your labor with some undeveloped resource, right? Now you think of that in like, in terms of uh, real estate or property, farmland, you, you go in there, you plow it, you improve it, you clear down some trees, you know, you build a home, you're mixing your labor with the natural resources and in unclaimed land, in truly unclaimed land, that's how you um, you acquire property, very much in the natural rights tradition, right? And then he goes on, you know, through the rest of this section and into that third section and is essentially dealing with some of the problems of the state taking over some of that, like, okay, this is my property. Um, I either, you know, went out and homesteaded it myself or I purchased it or traded with someone else to acquire it legally. You contrast that with the plunder or taking the property, um, you know, or taxes. You think about it that way. Basically, the state kind of granting itself the authority to go in and take someone's property or take someone's wealth or whatnot. And um, I like how he ties it back to kind of our, our natural rights tradition there. Yeah, and you know, I, you know, t- as you're as you're saying all of that, th- there has to be acceptance, right, by the public, based on whether it's, yeah. it's wh- whether they're forced to accept an idea, or whether they're, you know, sneakily persuaded to accept the the idea that you know the government is good they're wise they're the all-knowing all-seeing most divine thing on earth or whatever and they're here for your benefit um you know i I know he moves into that a little bit there which starts to overlap or not overlap you start to see how some of this stuff this illusion of legitimacy starts um you start seeing it in what's happening now or what has been happening in the past two years. Yes. Right. So yeah, that's right. that was like, there's a whole section here that I had, um, that I had highlighted that makes you see the direct correlation to the, to the Schmovid regime, as we'll say, yes. I don't want your podcast yes. to be taken down without a C. Yeah. What, yeah the, the sh- and um, so there's a lot of, there's ideas there. He says, for the masses of men do not create their own ideas or indeed think through these ideas in, independently. They follow passively the ideas adopted and disseminated by the body of intellectuals. The intellectuals are therefore the opinion molders, quote, in society. And so it is precisely a molding of opinion that the state most desperately needs. Um, and that's exactly what you saw. That's what you have seen. For the past two years, right? Um, Absolutely. And there's more, and, and you know, there's when I read this, it's funny. The first time I read this, I didn't really make that connection. 
um, the second time I read it through, it was plain as day that we were living, we've been living through that very thing. And there's proof for the past two years. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I fully agree. And I, I think this is where, you know, we can remind everyone listening, um, this is beyond just academic or just, you know, scholarly. We're not claiming to be scholars here. We're just having a discussion about the book. But we want to make this practical. We want to bring it home to all of you in California or Texas, uh, where we have some listeners, or Georgia, we've got some listeners. For everyone around the country, whether or not it's California, you know, we want to bring this home. And we have all been through this uh, Shmovid regime the past two and a half years or so. And we've been living under this, um, this illusion of legitimacy. And I think right after some of the passages you had just read from, uh, Bloss, then Rothbard goes into a d- little bit of a discussion on intellectuals. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, rings true. You know, I've, that's one of my big pet peeves is scientism, using scientific experts, the worship or the abuse of science, you know, to apply it to ethics or to what human beings should be doing. Um, or to use science and experts and expertism as a way to control people. And I'm, I'm very much against it, vehemently against that. And that's exactly what we've seen the past few years with Fauci, with Burks, with uh, Jerome Adams, with all these people, Redfield, all these guys, um, even Borla, you know, the CEO of, um, of Pfizer. All these guys are scientific experts, you know, right down to um, people who want to be involved in science and planning. They want to be experts like the, the Bill Gates types. All of these masters of the universe and the Davos types, <laughs> mm-hmm. they're experts. If they're not scientists or engineers, they cling on to them. They claim to have some, some expert knowledge. And the state really needs that in large part to kind of give itself an air of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of what I take from this. Mm-hmm. Very much so. The state has to reach out and say, okay, boy, uh, okay, if we just like crack down on the people and tell them, do this, just do it because we say so, and it's pure hypocrisy, almost like Animal Farm, (laughs) you know, with the pigs taking over the farmhouse. If we do that, eventually the people are going to get out their pitchforks and torches. They're going to be mad, right? So we got to come up with some bullshit. We got to come up with some experts. Um, and kind of give, dress this thing up a little bit. You know, put lipstick on this totalitarian pig. Right? <laughs> yeah. And that's where I see the experts come in. They're like uh, window dressing for the state, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's also important, you know, before you continue on, because I know the section you're reading about, or that you're, you're referencing here in Anatomy of the State. I have it highlighted. Uh, I think he has it broken into, like, uh, summed up as follows. There's point A and point B. Point B is like, is, is is quite interesting and you can get to that here in a second but i think it's important for people that don't know you to understand that this is coming like you're actually a scientist greg i don't know if people know that about you so it's like to hear a scientist speak to this i think is a, even more powerful i think you know and i yes. think you even mentioned that in one of your past episodes you're like hey and i'm a scientist and this is what i think Blah, 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 blah. So. Sure. Yeah, and it's actually Dr. Greg. Dr. Uh, Greg. You. Just like Dr. Jill Biden. <laughs> yeah, there right? you go. <laughs> so uh, I'll thank you very much, Bloss, for uh, deferring to my expertise <laughs> yeah. here on, on all matters of science. No, but it, it is that type of thing where you can kind of burnish your credentials and say, hey, listen to me because yeah. 
I am the science. I mean, Fauci even said that. You know, I represent science. Yeah. You know, science, the ap- apotheosis, yeah. the highest form, the incarnation of science. Dr. Truth Science, uh, as uh, Dave Smith yes. calls him. <laughs> right. And he shall not be questioned. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the state rulers are great and wise men. Parentheses. They rule by divine right. They are the aristocracy of men. They are the scientific experts, as Rothbard puts it here in this um, in this third chapter. And, um, you know, again, the state needs them mm-hmm. uh, because, again, this air of legitimacy, mm-hmm. and it really helps to cut, put a smiley face on the tyranny, essentially. Yeah. You know, and, and it's been proven, and we've seen it, that, you know, people, the reason why the state needs them is because the people in mass will tend to follow that, right? The, the, the rule of the land or whatever, right? And he says it's rule by the extent Government is inevitable, absolutely necessary, and far better than the indescribable evils that would ensure upon its downfall, right? So, yeah. Uh, Without us, it could be so much worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? It's, 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 uh, they're really painting a doom and gloom. Without well, it's almost like Hobbes, like Tom and Ho- Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan, right? Mm-hmm. It's just uh, um, life would be short, nasty, brutish, and, and whatever, cold and awful, and you know, every it's the war of all against all. Yeah. If you didn't have the state to direct everything in your life, forget about your local church or your friends in your neighborhood or your family, or you know your your town council. Forget about all that. But if you didn't have some massive state to look out after us. <laughs> It would be all over. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's some of the window dressing, I think. That, that's there. Okay. So, um, yeah, the next thing I wanted to mention kind of in this section is, um, you know, the fear of other systems. You know, that's always invoked. And then there's also just the way that, um, that the state will also, it'll bring in kind of rule by tradition or dynasty. You know, like we've had these family ruling um regimes for many years and there's this grand pomp and circumstance and and there's this tradition and that's one way of kind of getting inside people's Mm -hmm. people's heads inside of their minds um maybe some of that's even present in like the you know the ensconced uh, political parties too democrat republican you know that's kind of my tradition i identify there's even a little symbol there's the the donkey there's the elephant Mm -hmm. um i come from a long line of X. I come from a long line of Y, you know, Democrat, Republican, yeah. whatever, right? There's that tradition. And then one of the things that he touches upon, too, in this section is um, the state can try to maintain legitimacy by imposing guilt, by making mm-hmm. you feel guilt, by attacking greed, attacking self-interest. And this, this kind of uh, virtue signaling, it was amazing because that's, it might have been written 40-something years ago, but... That's like straight out of what we see today. It could be Elizabeth Warren, you know, just attacking corporate greed, right? Like corporations just turn greed on or off, mm-hmm. right? Or saying, um, well, you need us. We've got to protect the people from their own self-interest or from the greedy self-interest of others. The predation of corporations or the predation of these other groups. Um, that was something that also kind of spoke to me because oh, there are all these different kind of excuses yeah. or these window dressings, these ways to cover themselves, you know, as the state must do, yeah. right, to maintain that legitimacy. You know, you mentioned the use of guilt. I think it's important to, to point out the point. There's a couple of points, actually, one specific one right before that 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 part in the essay that sets up 
I think, the idea of guilt quite nicely, where, they, where he says, The greatest danger to the state is independent intellectual criticism. There is no better way to stifle that criticism than to attack any isolated voice, any raiser of new doubts, as a profane violator of the wisdom of his ancestors, right? So that part right there, we have seen happening, I mean, everywhere. The silencing of these independent voices, whether it's through so on social media channels, which is predominantly where it's at, people trying to take down, heck, Joe Rogan, cancel culture, yeah. anything related to that, right? And I think that is that kind of is the segue into the guilt part. It's kind of how I see it, you know. It's like, how dare you, you know, listen to these people? You know, they don't have the right message or whatever. We we're the ones who are going to give you the right, uh, I guess narrative so to speak that's not how they put it right but that's what they're trying right. to do manipulate all of that and to make you feel like i don't know almost like less than i mean i hear the way certain people yeah. talk you know who are not i guess in our circle and they take what the corporate press says as gospel truth and you can yeah. almost see how they almost you know, i would guess it any alternative alternative thought in their mind maybe they would feel guilty you know and yeah you know the state definitely wants to squash all of those other voices that say otherwise and it's just crazy how some of this how some of the talk many of the talking points have a direct connection to what's happening currently it's just crazy oh absolutely yeah, I mean, um, we now live in a country where just having an incorrect thought, you know, so-called incorrect mm -hmm. thought on election integrity, you know, whether or not you might, you're not even saying, oh, I can prove that there was, you know, fraud or I can prove X or Y. You can't even just question an election anymore. The, you know, that's that's an offense where the state says, nope, you can't have that thought. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, what else? We, we saw this with uh, the COVID regime, right? With, uh, with the V, with the injections, mm -hmm. right? You can't even question it. You can't even have an opinion where you're not even like just spreading, quote, misinformation. You can't even just be against it or have questions for your own children. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially here in California, we've been going through that with um, some of these awful bills, even uh, Senate Bill 866, um, which I don't know if you heard about there in Texas, but they're basically trying to take away parental consent and parental notification for children to receive injections or vaccinations as young as 12. Now, oh. with a lot of pressure and a lot of great freedom fighters going up to Sacramento and fighting this, they've raised it up to 15. But we're still talking about minors who were in high school receiving medical treatments and injections. Um, you know, and so we've, we fought all that, but this is, this is kind of where we're at. I mean, we, we're living in a revolutionary or radical time mm -hmm. um, where the state has granted itself all these powers and basically is saying, you can't really harbor these thoughts anymore, okay? It's for your own good. Yeah. About the election, about COVID, about the injections, whatever it might be, you can't even have an alternate um, frame of reference. You can't even be a nonconformist or a weirdo anymore, <laughs> which I say that lovingly. Yeah. Some of us might, might actually be nonconformists and weirdos. I never thought of myself that way growing up. I thought I was somewhat conventional, but it's like, man, nowadays we seem like radicals, right? Yeah. People like you and me. You know, or even Joe Rogan, <laughs> yeah. the biggest podcast in the country. Yeah. He can't even talk to Robert Malone, yeah. Peter McCullough. You know, honestly, it's like uh, the way I see it, you know, related to this whole this whole section, it's like thank God for alternative media. 
right? Thank God for other sources that you can go to now because of the internet and you know you have all these different podcasts and different voices and and people who are really doing good work i think you know of course you're going to have trash trash sources but for the most part you can tell the ones who know their history the ones who have well educated on topics and um i mean just thank god for them you know to have the platform and i think because of that more and more people i'm hoping are starting to wake up and become more red-pilled. And, you know, as Rothbard says later on in the, in the book, you know, active resistance of the majority of the public, right? The state does not like that. They fear that. And I think it's because of podcasts like yours and Part of the Problem and, you know, Scott Horton's show and all that, those other ones, the more people are exposed to that, I, I believe that, it leads more to that white-pilled moment, so to speak, as Michael Malice would say, you know? Yeah. Uh, it gives some hope, you know? Well, we're living through revolutionary times, I think, in a bad way, but also in a good way, mm-hmm. as you're just getting at, right? Um, we're able to just start a podcast and have these interesting discussions and have growing audiences, right? And start reaching people, and then that spurs other discussions, yeah. right? The cool thing was, when we were growing up, you know, everyone talks about this, everybody, everybody's older than in their 20s or their teens, but we all talk about this. Growing up, there was ABC, CBS, NBC, and then Fox, and then you had public TV. You had four or five channels, and they were all spewing the same propagandistic line, the same thing, and they had rigid control. They even had, they built the FCC to protect that monopoly, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about statism. The FCC basically would grant licenses to the air, to airwaves. And so the internet has destroyed that. Mm-hmm. We can start up our own podcasts and have these conversations. We can go peer to peer. There's so many different ways of, of getting information out there. And so I think it's a wonderful thing that the corporate media, so-called, um, is probably in their death throes, metaphorically speaking. I, th- I think they're done with. Yeah. That silly, asinine, just it's like a juvenile control that they've tried to tried to maintain for themselves it's like it's over it's done yeah. for the most part yeah you know and sometimes they they get mad and they they say we're going to exert control and they have these fits you know these histrionics and they throw their tantrums and they try to get everyone banned uh whether it's a joe rogan or whether it's someone else and they they try to destroy but it's inevitable the tidal wave's coming you know their their time is done mm-hmm. and how does that tie back into what we're talking about with the state well the state uses these giant corporations, media companies, and other giant concerns. They use them to do their dirty work mm-hmm. many times. They use them and they fund them and they even coerce them into doing what they're not supposed to be doing themselves, right? Yeah, sure. So squashing free, free, um, free media, free speech, dissent, squashing that happens all the time. But the government now just puts in a call over to Facebook, you know, in the Bay Area or Twitter in San Francisco or wherever it is. They just put in that call and say, hey, we need like uh, that guy, Alex Berenson. You know, he was a New York Times reporter. He kind of has some clout. So we need you to shut him down. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they pull the plug. Done. Yeah. Right. We've seen it time and time again. Um, but that that's what the state has done. And that's what the state is, is trying to keep doing. But. They're losing control. I yeah, think, and again, which is a good. I thing. can't stress it enough, you know. And it goes back to what we said in the early part of of the podcast today. 
is what you just described again is just one other of the one of the many ways that they try to force their legitimacy upon society this time through the through threats through force through manipulation of these companies right whether they're the corporate press or social media platforms or, or what have you um and that's what it ultimately boils down to they need the faith of the people they need the people to buy into this deal right they're just they're just snake oil yeah. salesmen is how i see it you know what i mean it's right um on like a massive scale so but the problem is with with us with the people if we buy into it if we play along um then you know eventually it's like okay well this this is the problem this is why uh, jefferson talked about having these generational revolutions mm -hmm. and obviously we hope for peace we want peace but even a revolution in the minds of the people has to take place once in a generation. You know, it's yes. not just inherited down through the bloodstream, so to speak, or in our, should be in our, in our American DNA. But I think a lot of people have kind of gone to sleep or kind of let that slip out and just think that, that this amazing system and all of this prosperity that we've inherited, that it's just, um, that it's, it never ends. That it, that it never ceases. Yes. And that's, that's not the case at all. Yeah, no. Right. And you know, and I know Rothbard gets into this in, in the chapter, you know, because you start understanding kind of how the state kind of what he says, how the state transcends its limits. Right. And we've seen them really overstep, you know, I mean, they the overarching hand of doom is what I call them. Right. It's just like they're they're huge. You know, they're 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 really pushing the envelope on what they're what they're trying to do with the American people. And I think it's important for. You know, like I said in that last part where he says active resistance of the majority of the public, you know, that little statement there that that's what the state fears. Now, I think it's also important to take that little segment of what he says there and it can start on a smallest scale of resistance. Right. So we know. Right. You and I know how far the state has tried to expand their quote authority okay we saw this when we were going to florida on the air in the airports right oh, it, yeah. it's like even resistance at the minute level is very important because other people start to see that and then they then hopefully get the courage to now put up their own resistance so for right, example right. you and i were in the airport there is no way in heck that i wanted to put that stinking mask on and I didn't until we got into the plane and I would, you know, there was that little moment with the flight attendant or whatever. Okay. Um, but you have to, and you even said this, you have to make it very difficult on those trying to be the weapon of the, of the state, trying to yes. enforce these like ridiculous, you know, ideas of wearing masks and doing this and doing that. I don't care if it's the mandates. all the mandates yeah. and all that stuff. I'm going to make it very difficult on you. I'll be, I'm not going to be a yeah. jerk about it unless you're a jerk back, but I will make it very difficult. And so those little tiny yeah. moments of resistance, I think they add up. And I think it's important. And anybody who's a little shy, they need to start doing that stuff, you know, and, and, yes. and finding the yeah. courage to do it. And then it leads to doing it on a larger scale, like you yes. have been doing in California with, you know. Uh, Our state government. Yeah, or state government, yeah. 
uh, like what you've been doing with the with your children and like the schools and all that stuff and it just builds up from there it's like an avalanche at that point and yeah yeah you know even thinking about like uh traveling right you mentioned like okay we went to florida the, the fun uh, tom woods experience you know for his 2000th episode thing yeah looking back on that you know what strikes me is that the state can't do all this on its own. Mm-mm. The state cannot mind the lives and get in your face, boss, and my face and my family's face. They can't actually, they don't have the manpower to govern and coerce all 330 million of us. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that they do to continue this you know, soft tyranny or even straight out explicit tyranny, whatever you want to consider it, what do they do? They actually have to turn citizen against citizen. They basically get inside the minds with that propaganda, with the programming that you see on corporate media day in and day out. Remember those tickers? This many are dead. This many are dying and on ventilate. Remember that crap (laughs) on like CNN and even on Fox News on all the corporate media? They basically have to scare people into compliance, to blackmail people into compliance. And before you know it, you have one neighbor ratting out or turning in another neighbor in a neighborhood for having a gathering. Or... You have a flight attendant on an airplane who's going by and like punching people or nudging people and yelling at them to get the mask up when they just take the mask down to get a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has happened to me before. Um, even when I was kind of napping on a plane, the mask slips down to the, you know kind of the apex of your nose, literally just the tip of your nose, my nose in this case. And I've had a, a, a flight attendant come and like nudge my shoulder and rudely say, get it up, get that mask up above your nose. And it's like, how did this happen? <laughs> what about decency? What about um, humanity and being humane and kind to one another? All out the window. Mm-hmm. The state somehow has that mind control where we can get, pe- we can basically go to war with each other, mm-hmm. which is not what we want. It's incredible, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it really was. It- and, you know, what you're saying is it really did happen. It happened to us on the plane coming, I think, back from Florida. It, it, yeah, I mean, we almost, I know I almost became a viral moment with a, with the guy next to me also. He was like rising up, you know, like he, we were making it very difficult on this flight attendant. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like, I know you've been manipulated by the state to like have this, you're trying to be the extension of them. That's not how this is going to work. This is not going to go go very well. Um, right. And it, it is amazing. Like you said, I, I can't believe how easily people just, I don't know, turned on each other and how some people just flat up just said, oh, okay, they're right. I'm wrong. I'm going to enforce, you know, this divine law or whatever. It was, it's just complete r- ridiculousness. Yeah, and I would say, okay, fellow Americans here listening to this podcast, fellow Californians or wherever you are, remember, we're talking about like mask mandates, right? And what the state has done. This is an example. But think about it. For the United States government, the federal or the national overarching government, what we're referring to as the state, for them to tell all 330 million people, I guess minus toddlers, right? They had mercy on those two and under. So maybe it's 320 million people, whatever it is. But for them to tell basically 99% of America to wear a cloth or some kind of some kind of mask, fiberglass, whatever it is, to wear this cloth mask over your face that becomes bacteria-ridden, moist, disgusting, unsanitary, 320, 330 million people. 
Do they have that authority? So think about it. Everyone's going to say, well, I don't know. I think so. No, 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 no. They only have that authority according to the social contract if I can find it in the Constitution. Where does it say that the government has this kind of authority mm -hmm. over medical decisions, health decisions, um, that this somehow applies to, what, interstate commerce? Is that what they're going to use? Or the Necessary and Proper Clause? Or the Supremacy Clause? All of these constitutional bastardizations that are completely extrapolated beyond anything that, that was ever intended or enumerated in the Constitution. Uh, and Madison talks about this. Um, we wouldn't have a general welfare clause. Why would we even have a constitution if, we, if everything, every power was hidden in the general welfare clause, right? But the point is, none of these power, powers were granted by us to the government, and it's a one-way street. We grant those powers to the government mm -hmm. to regulate us. That's how it's supposed to work. And what we've seen, I think, is just a very poignant reminder over the past two, two and a half years of, whoa, Something has gone badly awry because we never gave up these rights. And whether it's the Ninth Amendment and the Bill of Rights, we, we never gave up. We didn't have to list what rights we were going to retain. We had to basically list those powers that the government did have mm -hmm. in the Constitution. That's the way it works. It's a really a one-way street, mm -hmm. right? And so we're supposed to re be able to retain any medical choice or any vaccination choice or, um, you know, public health choice, you know, whatever public yeah. health is. Um, but that's really, I think, a key and really fundamental thing that we have to come back to, that, you know, whether or not you're a small government person, a laissez-faire kind of um, free market person, or even some of these anarcho-capitalists, it's really, do you despise what the state has done to us? And do, did we grant the state any of these authorities? Because remember, the state doesn't have any of these powers or authority unless we granted it to the state. And when we get controversies that go to court, right, they go to the Supreme Court, I think Rothbard also touches upon this. At what point do we think it's a neutral playing field? If there's a lawsuit and we say, hey, I don't like what the government's done, I'm suing the government. And then that lawsuit is decided in another branch of government. So it's citizen versus government held in a government court. I mean, it's the deck is kind of stacked against you, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get the further problem of the courts, uh, specifically the Supreme Court, granting itself the right to decide what's constitutional, taking that away from the people who have these things called eyes and a brain. You know, we can open up the Constitution. It's like a pamphlet size, right? And we can see what's in there in, you know, Article 1, Section 8 for the Congress, and we can see in what Article 2, what the president's allowed to do. We can see those powers. And if those powers were not given up by us and granted to those um, branches of the government, then they don't get them, mm -hmm. right? And I don't need the Supreme Court to say, you know, we're the, we're the expert divine law interpreters, and we've decided that we are going to be the ones who decide what is and is not constitutional across the land. Not just one case. They're not just deciding one case. Now they've gone beyond that and they've basically taken all that power, right? They've subsumed all this power and they've said, yeah, now we, as another branch of government, are going to decide what the Constitution says. So again, Rothbard talks about this, but I think when you, when you think about it in those stark terms, it's like, wow. So we've got one branch of government deciding the constitutionality of what another branch of the government is doing to us. Is there a problem there? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. No, it's, 
You know, it's funny. I, I think maybe you were starting to lead up to this um, uh, where Rothbard starts bringing up the idea of nullification, right? So, yes. So you know we bring we brought up the the mask mandates and how that how we were seeing a lot of the, of what Rothbard was saying in Anatomy of the State and how that relates to what had been going on the past two years. However, I think that's just an example. I think it's important for people to understand that what what Rothbard is saying and what we've seen in the past two years is. I mean, if he if he was alive today, for sure, he, he would he would not want us to forget that this is just the beginning. That was like a test almost. I, that's kind of how I saw right. the past two years. You can see it now right. in the future of what how, how other ways that the state can start trying to, you know, tell you how to live your life. I mean, look at what are they called ESG scores or any of this nonsense that's going on, exactly. you know, like yeah. well, what kind of car you can buy. You can't uh, you can't use, you know, uh gas generators in california or whatever these crazy like laws are it's nutty right how about agriculture uh, sorry <laughs> yeah. to jump in there i'm just thinking um i had <clears throat> spoken with a, with another guest recently um even about what's going on over in the netherlands yeah. know, sri lanka but you think about like those dutch farmers and i don't know if this has been a few years in coming but basically it was just here's the date and I'm sorry, you can't use these whatever nitrogen-based fertilizers yeah. or certain fertilizers anymore because the Trump card. Get ready, the environment, <laughs> um, part of ESG. Yeah. But I, I don't know about the environment. That's fine. I don't want to trash my neighborhood or my local environment. But who said that the environment is the government's ultimate Trump card, yeah. right? And basically, that that can become almost this uh, guilt-inducing thing. You know, you go back to the virtue signaling yeah. we discussed earlier. It's don't be a bad person. Take care of the environment. Yeah. And and that's it. So there's no more discussion permitted. We're just going to do away with, you know, this uh, this these farming methods that have fed so many people and that have led to more human material flourishing and better nutrition. And I'm not saying they've been perfect methods. I'm not saying we won't develop cleaner or more efficient methods of farming. But to date, they've been very effective in, in easing worldwide hunger and helping out humanity, right? Mm -hmm. But then for these states... The massive super state to just come in and say, sorry, boom, you're done. Yeah. That's very scary to me. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think it doesn't Rothbard refer to the massive super state somewhere in here also when he starts talking about, you know, these the, the influence yeah. of the international law or, you know what I mean? This global law. Yes. And right. it's, it's really quite, it's, it's, it's actually quite, um, it's almost like what was he like a like a, uh, a Nostradamus or something? You know what I mean? It's almost like he is telling you exactly like how things are going to go, you know. And we can see yeah. it happening, you know, with the WEF and everything. It's 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 really quite. Um, I don't know. With all of that going on, it's quite easy with for people. I can see how people would be kind of like quote black pilled, right? Like there's no hope. Yeah, you know. Uh, however, I, I see it the other way around because of what we talked about earlier, because of the advent of new technologies that allow people to get information out, new ideas out, challenging questions, challenging ideas to large masses amounts of people. I, and I, I'm hopeful that, you know, things will change, like things will improve, I should say, and swing towards, you know, 
towards our side, you know, and yeah, and it, to a certain extent, I agree. Um, I want to try to be white pilled, and I think part of the reason that I'm so-called white pilled, or in other <coughs> words, for people not familiar with it, maybe seeing the optimistic mm-hmm. side of things, seeing that we might win out. That's kind of very broadly, I think, what we mean with white pill. Yeah. But I think there is a white pill moment for me and maybe for you and some others, many others, hopefully. Um, when we think about we've been woken up, mm-hmm. and I don't mean woke, I mean just, you know, we, we now are paying attention. Mm-hmm. And we're partly realizing that, yeah, okay, politics is not all of life. Certainly not by any stretch of the imagination. Enjoy your day, enjoy your family, be a good person, be involved in your community. But people are waking up. And that's what it takes. Every generation has to be, has to be um, awakened mm-hmm. or woken up. And Jefferson told us this. All of our founders reminded us this. There's no just autopilot where we go on cruise, uh, you know, cruise control or whatever. And I think a lot of Americans, certainly a lot of Californians too, have just been kind of drifting and going along with all this stuff and it's gotten worse and worse. And maybe we've had a few generations that have been less engaged because there was so much material wealth and prosperity and human flourishing from a material perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, you know, there's never going to be some spiritual uh, time when everyone's perfect. But materially, things have been pretty darn good and it was easy for people to kind of fall asleep, Mm -hmm. I think. And now that a lot of people are waking back up and they're seeing that, as you mentioned, the COVID thing could just be the beginning. But people now are going to be awake. and I think people are going to be resisting it, which is their natural right. Yeah. You have the natural right to acquire property, to go out and seek your own medical uh, care, to take care of your family, to feed yourself, to defend yourself. These are all natural inherent rights. And we don't really care what the consensus is. Right. We don't care about what the utilitarians say or the pragmatists. And they say, you know, some people could have, you know, firearms to defend themselves. But these people in the inner city can't. No, that's not how any of this works. We're all awake now. And it's kind of the thrill of being alive. Mm -hmm. That's what I see it. It's like, okay, we're alive. It's not easy. You can't go on autopilot. Right. That's kind of that's that's how I'm looking at it right now. You're absolutely right. For me, it's more of a, I don't know, like I have moments of white pill, but I have moments up, you know, I have moments where I'm just like, man, is this, is this going to just keep going downhill, (laughs) you know? And I try to snap myself out of it, but we were talking about, uh, you know, the emergence of the WEF. And before that nullification too, which he he goes into, he touches upon that. So, yeah, it's, if you don't mind, like, tell me your thoughts about that. Like how, because that's something that I've noticed the general public doesn't really know much about. Yes. And <laughs> so. to me, it's kind of the crux. It, it really is like the crux of American conservatism. And I mean that as, as people, on, people on the right, even liberty-minded libertarian folks, they have to realize that the American tradition, what makes us different in so many ways, is really nullification tied into federalism. It's very important, specifically this idea of vertical federalism that built into our Constitution. um, Essentially, we had 13 states, individual states, which came together voluntarily to form a compact. They decided to form the union, and they authorized this union with certain enumerated powers, and that was it, right? So... 
they came up with that union. They, they put it together, they're member states, but they retain all other powers for, for their citizens, right? That's, that's the way this whole thing was, was put together here in, in the United States of America, right? And the concept of nullification is crucial to our federal republic, I think, because we can all open up that pamphlet, that constitution. We can read it in, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, the whole thing with, with all the amendments. And we can see what powers were granted to the government. You know, we can count them. There aren't that many. Article 1, Section 8, you can go look in Article 2 and see what the president's allowed to do. Read Article 3 on the courts. You'll go through that really fast, 10 minutes probably, right? And if anything is plainly in violation of the Constitution, you know, if the federal government is usurping, you remember the founders love that word, usurpation, um, and Michael Bolden, the 10th, 10th Amendment Center, have done great expositions on this, great explanations. Um, but if there's any usurpation of power, well, everyone from Madison, from Jefferson, from many others throughout the years have said, okay, well, that's, if it's not in the Constitution, that act is null and void. And it's up to the states. It's almost the states and the people's duty to say, yeah, time out. No, we're not following this. It's not even a law whatsoever. This is nothing that we're bound to follow because the states never granted the union that power. Hmm. And that's the concept of nullification. It isn't just um, crazy, you know, um, you know, your hair is on fire. Just disobey whatever you want. Do whatever you want. It's, it's nothing like that. It's not chaos. What it is is just a very kind of ordered liberty. It's basically saying, yeah, the federal government can do things that we authorized it to do, but everything else gets regulated by the states. Mm-hmm. And um, and that really is the concept. And I think, to make a long story shorter, nullification and taking back localized power is really important, and it's fundamental to American liberty, to how our how our wonderful um, you know United States plural were set up. You know we, how we joined together. We said, yeah, yeah. we're going to have a union for defense, and we're going to have a union for for a few other purposes. But other than that, it's okay for Florida to be different from New York. In fact, that's that's kind of cool. It's kind of wonderful. If you don't like mm-hmm. how DeSantis is running Florida, then you know you can go up and enjoy the the wonderful uh, government policies of uh, New York if that's what you want. You know that that's yeah. great. And then we're all unified in friendship. That's the the crux of Americanism. That's how I see it. I, I think nullification is really important. That's how we regain our local liberty. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, no. I, I just I just. Um no, I'm 100% with you on that. You know, the more and more that I was kind of, of course, you're the one who turned me on to Michael Bolden and the Tenth Amendment Center, which I re- recommend anybody who's interested in any of this stuff to, to take a look at. But it is very important for, I think, you know, the average, you know, American citizen to understand that whole concept of nullification and how, you know, what powers of the federal government really have, right? And, and then what is uh, what powers go to the states, you know, so I just think a lot right now, especially with, you know, everything going on currently, there's so many, so many people bickering about, you know, Supreme Court this, Supreme Court that, and I don't really think they fully understand what, like, what Why? the federal government, yeah. yeah, it's like. Why do we need to be at each other's throats? All 50 <laughs> yeah, exactly. states should have different policies. Right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And I think they fail to see it's like, man, if you don't like if you don't like a particular whatever, whatever law it is, 
inject whatever it is, happens to be, then you have way more control at a local and state level to influence whatever the legislation is, right? That's than right. you ever would at the federal level. Yeah. It's like your your voice doesn't exist really at that yeah. point. At least at the smaller level, state and local, you've got a hell of a chance to influence, you know, what goes into law, you know, what legislation gets passed. I don't know. That's how I see it. It seems to make a hell of a lot more sense to me, and I don't know if quite anybody really sees it that way. Well, in Washington, D.C. is 3,000 miles away from me. It's, what, 1,500-ish <laughs> miles away for you. Yeah. They, don't know the, they don't know our local you know, jurisdiction. Yeah. They don't know what's going on in California. They don't care about the nuances here. They don't care about um, you know, what you're going through there in, in Texas, Fort Worth, or Dallas, or Austin. They don't know yeah. all the local issues, and they shouldn't. They don't, have, they don't have enough personnel. They don't. Who cares what they think, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And for anyone listening to this concept of nullification, it isn't coming from just crazy, you know, anarchist or libertarian nutjobs. I mean, it is rooted in the American tradition. It's literally, you know, these are the principles of, of 1798 and even before that. But in 1798, uh, Jefferson wrote the Kentucky Resolutions, and then there was uh, James Madison who wrote the Virginia Resolutions, where they directly addressed this. And um, all the founders, you know, talked about this, uh, certainly in the ratification debates and whatnot, many of them did, um, that uh, don't worry, the Constitution's just going to have very limited powers for this new federal government, but you states, you're going to retain all of the other powers to yourself. So there's nothing more American than that in terms of our system of government. And... Um, you know, and I love that. I love that part of our heritage, our political heritage. I love that um, that system. I think that I, I don't necessarily think that the system needs to be completely thrown out at this time. I think we need to actually practice federalism, and I think we will all have a much better go at things. I think there'll be a lot more peace. And for example, Biden now, if they're talking in his administration about trying to codify, you know, Roe, put it into law. I don't even know what that means. It makes no sense if you know the Constitution at all. You can't make a law passed in Congress that says states can't make laws. It, it, like, that doesn't even make sense. There's no way to codify. You can't codify Roe. You know, so it's, it's almost backwards. It's like they're mad. They're having a fit. And they're saying we're going to somehow put this Roe v. Wade, you know, we're going to put a, a right to an abortion into law, which I guess would prevent the states from making their own laws. To me, it's got to be a constitutional convention, um, yeah. which I would not support. I support states making their own abortion policy. But to tie this back in really quick with nullification, I think if the Biden administration attempts anything like that, you know, to override the wills of states and to basically say, hey, Mississippi, or hey, Florida, or hey, Alabama, whatever, Utah, you must provide abortions. You must allow abortion in your state and, you know, X, Y, and Z. I think what we need to see in terms of nullification is those state legislatures uh, in cooperation with their governors basically stepping up and saying, no, we do not recognize this new federal law that the Biden administration has signed into law. We're not recognizing it. That's not the law in our state. And then the Supreme Court can say whatever they want. Neato. You know, that's, that's like a... Um, it's cool trivia. You know, it's like, cool, bro, yeah. thanks, whatever. But we can read the Constitution and we can see what rights are going to be retained at the state level. 
Yeah, it's important for people to understand that that's important because then that would set the precedent for every anything else that came after. Right. Right. So, so on that, on, really quick, I wanted to get kind of your thoughts on the last chapter there and kind of like how Rothbard starts tying because I see how he starts tying in all obviously all the other stuff, but I think how he finishes it is quite nice. Um, for those listening, the chapter is history as a race between state power and social power. Right. Uh, thoughts there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I really think what it is when he talks about, um, social power is over nature, state power is power over man. And I think that, you know, when we, um, we kind of call it out as what it is, basically saying, well, why should this foreign entity, and it's not foreign, but why should this state different entity have power over each of our lives? You know, man in the sense of mankind, humanity, uh, man, men and women. Um, when people realize that and say, no, this is, not, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, it is kind of a white pill moment, I think. Um, leaving mm-hmm. people with that information and putting these ideas in people's heads to basically say, okay, I realize what the state is. I realize what state power represents. And don't forget that we as individuals have power. Um, and that's kind of a thought that it spurs in my mind. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. And I think that was, a, I couldn't really even think of a better way to end, for him to end, you know, this, you know, 90 page, 95 page essay. Um, and and I, I really do encourage anybody listening who has not read this book to pick it up because it is a big, you will have the revelation of, man, yeah, we do have power, right? And we, we're not supposed to just hand things over, you know, to the state, which we've seen a lot of people do, especially in the past couple of years. And uh, for me, it was a huge, 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 like, red pill moment. It's kind of funny. I joke with people. Uh, well, first, at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned, along with Anatomy of the State, Economics in One Lesson is another great book by Henry yeah. Hazlitt. I actually have a whole box of those books that I got from the Mises Institute for free, and I've handed them out to to give out you know, to people. people. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've given them out uh, already, like four of them. That's awesome. But <clears throat> Anatomy of the State is one of those books that I think is so important um, for people to start really understanding, you know, what the state is and isn't, uh, and then everything in between for them to really start paying attention and taking charge of kind of what's going on in their lives. Yes. Um, I wish that one was, let me, let me jump in there and say too, sorry to, sorry to interrupt your train of thought, but I'm thinking anatomy of the state is a really great book to read for those people who consider themselves, I think conservatives. Um, and you know, in many ways I, I am very much a conservative, um, kind of a radical conservative, but for people who are kind of conservatives or right-wingers, this is a really important book, I think, for red-pilling. Um, mm-hmm. And then hopefully in future episodes, we will talk about some really important books to red-pill libertarians, you know, to kind of tie libertarians yeah. back into what mm-hmm. are natural rights, you know, what, what is that tradition, you know, where do we, yeah. where do we get these things from? Um, we're not all just free-floating individuals that don't live in a community or that don't live in a family or in a town or whatnot. But... Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is a, a critical work, and uh, I recommend everyone go out and read it. You know, take an afternoon or a couple afternoons and, and read it and enjoy it. 
see if you agree or if you disagree, but it's, it's kind of one of those cool books that you can pass out and people can kind of uh, get a lot out of it, hopefully in a couple hours or in an hour of reading. Yeah, I, I've loved it. And, uh, and I'm glad that we've done this little talk about it. You know, I already know of some people that I'm definitely going to make sure that they, they listen to this episode when it, when it drops. Yeah. Um, homework it's, assignment. It's important. <laughs> Send yeah, it out yeah, to yeah. them. <laughs> right. Well, cool. Yeah, man. I don't have anything else on on the book. I mean, we could talk quite long about it, but um, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, I think let's we covered a lot. Let's do another uh, another episode on this. I've really really appreciated uh, spending this time with you and chatting about Rothbard and Anatomy of the State. And um, again, just for anyone listening, it's this is the type of thing where you know I love this country. I love this country's uh, revolutionary heritage and our natural rights tradition. And this goes right in line with that. Again, you know, if you're if you love the the founders, the revolutionaries, the the Patrick Henrys, the Sam Adams, this is really cool because it kind of reenkindles that flame of liberty. I think, and it it's fair. It's okay to question. You know, like okay, what is this Leviathan giant national government we have in Washington D.C.? Um, so really important stuff. And um, you know, shoot me an email or message me on Instagram. Anyone who um, who goes through and reads this book, you know, bring, bring Bloss and me into this. And uh, we'd love to keep, keep chatting, you know, uh, keep talking with you about this. But um, yeah, anything else Bloss or that we can sign off after this, man? No, just um, how do you normally end your podcasts? <laughs> I say thank you and goodbye. <laughs> no. Anyway, uh, yeah, this has been California Liberty Project. I really appreciate everyone listening in. Um, make sure to subscribe and share this episode and Bloss uh, have a great afternoon man thank you thanks for having me this has been the California Liberty Project podcast make sure to subscribe share it with others and follow us on Instagram and Twitter